Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Heated Exchanges, Philosophy in Egyptian Narratives and Dialogues. Have you ever complained about being treated unfairly and gotten short shrift from those who could do something about it? Have you ever found yourself getting into a disagreement with yourself? If so, you'll be able to relate to at least one of the two classic works of ancient Egyptian philosophy that we will be discussing in today's episode, The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant and the Dispute Between a Man and His Ba. And if you answered no to the question about disagreeing with yourself and did it out loud while wearing headphones, then it probably looks to others who happen to be around you like your answer is really yes. The two works we will be discussing both have something like a narrative structure built around speeches or dialogue. The philosophical power of the works derives from the content of these speeches and from the relationship between these speeches and the narrative frame. The fact that these are evidently fictional works makes them of literary interest to be sure, but the weighty discourses at their center make them the works of ancient Egypt that are perhaps easiest to recognize as philosophical. Egyptologist Hans Goedeke believed that the two texts in question have more in common than their structure. He hypothesized that they were the creations of a single author on the basis of linguistic similarities between the two. Goedeke went so far as to identify their writer as Keti, whom we mentioned last time as the acclaimed author of The Instruction of King Amenemhet, and who is also credited with writing a unique and darkly funny instruction known as The Satire of the Trades, in which a scribe impresses upon his son just how much better it is to be a scribe than to have various other jobs. Keti is, in fact, celebrated in a work known as The Immortality of Writers, as perhaps the most important writer of them all. If Goedeke was right to ascribe all these texts to his hand, then he should be ranked among the great literary geniuses of world history. But before we get carried away and start petitioning for a very posthumous Nobel Prize, we should remember that, especially when we get past the cases of the satire of the trades and the instruction of King Amenemhet, these ascriptions to Keti are highly speculative. Firm evidence concerning the authorship of ancient Egyptian texts is generally hard to come by. The tale of the eloquent peasant is set during the first intermediate period, a time of disunity and decentralized power falling between periods of political unity, known as the Old and Middle Kingdoms. It is the first intermediate period because there's also a second intermediate period between the Middle and New Kingdoms, and even a third intermediate period between the New Kingdom and what is known as the Late Period, which comes to an end in 332 BC thanks to Alexander the Great, who was definitely in the advanced rather than intermediate class on military conquest. Some have wondered whether the eloquent peasant might have been written during the time in which it is set. It is, however, now commonly viewed as a production of the Middle Kingdom, and specifically the Twelfth Dynasty, which, as we mentioned last time, appears to have been something of a literary golden age. Richard Parkinson, the Egyptologist who has done the most to advance our understanding of the eloquent peasant as a literary work, guesses that it was written during the reign of Senroset II, which would probably mean somewhere around the mid-19th century BC. The tale begins with a peasant named Hunanup from Wadi Natrun, an oasis to the northwest of what is now Cairo, telling his wife that he is going to the Nile Valley to get provisions. 
Stocked with bread and beer to live on, and a variety of goods to trade, he heads towards Heracleopolis, at that time the capital of Egypt. Along the way, he encounters the tale's villain, Nemtenacht, a scheming aristocrat who devises a plan to steal the peasants' belongings. Nemtenacht sends a servant to lay a sheet on the narrow path between his barley crops and a body of water. When Khunanov tries to travel along the path, Nemtenacht warns him not to trample on the sheet. Trying to obey this command leads Khunanov toward the barley, which he is also warned not to trample, and soon enough, one of Khunanov's donkeys can't help but snack on a bit of barley. Nemtenacht seizes upon this justification to seize the donkey, and when Khunanov protests, Nemtenacht beats him and takes all of his donkeys. You can almost picture him twirling his mustache and cackling as his nefarious plan comes to fruition. Khunanov spends a week fruitlessly pleading with Nemtenacht to return his belongings, then goes on to Heracleopolis to ask the high steward, Renzi, to intervene. Renzi discusses the matter with his fellow officials, but they are dismissive, and Renzi himself remains, for the moment, silent. Khunanov petitions him again, and gives the first of the extended speeches that take up the bulk of the text. Renzi is evidently impressed. He goes to the king, who is called Nebkaure, and tells him of the peasant's eloquence. The king advises Renzi to remain silent, so that the peasant will speak more. Renzi should quietly provide for Khunanov's family in the meanwhile. Khunanov petitions Renzi eight more times, thus making a total of nine speeches. Each time, Renzi is unresponsive or even hostile. After the third speech, he has poor Khunanov beaten. By the ninth petition, Khunanov despairs that justice will never be done and appears to be considering suicide. Renzi finally ends his misery and reveals that these petitions have all been recorded in writing. He has them read out and presented to King Nebkaure, who is extremely pleased and tells Renzi to go ahead and judge the case. The wicked Nemtenacht is harshly condemned and all his property awarded to Hunanup. The end. There is an irony at the center of this story. Though eloquence wins the case for Hunanup in the end, it also postpones the day of justice. As Parkinson puts it, the eloquence which ensures the peasant's success is also the cause of his prolonged suffering. And there is dramatic irony, too. We sympathize with Hunanup's frustration, even while knowing that he has already found favor. These aspects of the text point towards a philosophical question. Is the injustice done to the peasant by Nemtenacht being compounded by a further injustice on the part of Renzi and the king? If so, it is not the one that Hunanup imagines. These powerful men are not rejecting his entreaties, only dragging things out to provoke him to further speechifying. They place aesthetic appreciation above the need for expedient, just action. The steward and monarch are concerned about the needs of their subjects, but if you display a talent for speaking, as well as need, well, it's time to pass the popcorn and justice is just going to have to wait. These themes are further deepened by the content of the nine speeches themselves. Once we take this aspect of the tale into account, it becomes clear why the Egyptologist Jan Asman has said that the tale could justifiably be called a treatise on Maat. As we mentioned last time, Maat is a central Egyptian concept associated with order and righteousness. It comes up in almost every one of Hunanup's nine petitions, so understanding it is crucial to seeing why the eloquent peasant should be viewed as an underappreciated classic of political philosophy. 
We might first note some important religious dimensions of the concept, as Maat is also a goddess in the Egyptian pantheon, recognizable in iconography by the feather tucked into her headband. In the Book of the Dead, which we discussed in episode 4, we find the memorable image of a scale upon which the heart of the person seeking to reach the afterlife must be weighed against the feather of Maat. If one's heart weighs the same as the feather, one may pass on, otherwise a monster sits ready to devour the unfortunate wayfarer. But in the eloquent peasant, religious connotations remain mostly implicit. Hunanup instead invokes Maat as a moral and social ideal. In the first petition, he says that political authority should be a destroyer of falsehood and a creator of Maat. In the third petition, in the context of demanding that Renzi deal punishment to the punishable, Hunanup brings up what he identifies as a proverbial saying, doing mat is the breath of the nose. As we've noted before, the word's meaning seems to hover between our notions of truth and justice, as we can see in the eighth petition, where Hunanup exhorts Renzi to speak mat, do mat. The translation truth goes better with speaking, whereas justice would be more natural for action. Of course, that does not show the Egyptians were philosophically confused. They would no doubt say to speakers of English that we take apart one unified concept, what they called mat, into two artificially separate ones, obscuring the intimate connection they saw between truth in speaking and justice in action. Asman takes the most important passage in The Eloquent Peasant, when understood as a kind of philosophical treatise on mat, to be the part of the ninth and final petition where Hunanob says, There is no yesterday for the negligent, no friend for him who is deaf to Maat, no holiday for the selfish. Asman discerns here a tripartite definition of Maat in terms of social solidarity. There is no yesterday for the negligent. This line opposes Maat to negligence or inactivity, which it associates with forgetfulness of the past. Maat demands active solidarity, a dedication to reciprocal action that is absent when complaints go unanswered and wicked deeds go unpunished. No friend for him who is deaf to Maat. Whereas the previous line was about a failure to act, this one is about a failure to listen. Maat is thus communicative solidarity, and Asman reminds us of the way that this theme of the value of hearing was treated in the instruction of Fahotep, which we discussed in the previous episode. Finally, no holiday for the selfish, an aphorism that raises the question how Madonna could consistently have sung the lyrics to her two early smash hits, Holiday and Material Girl. As Asman notes, this line adds the notion of intentional solidarity, an internal commitment to altruism over egoistic self-concern. The eloquent peasant stands in an intriguing relationship to the genre of instructions we discussed last time, which standardly ascribe wise words to people in high social positions, like the vizier Ptahhotep and the king whose son is Merikare. In this work, by contrast, wisdom is ascribed to a marginal figure, someone of low social status from the fringes of Egypt. This may remind us of Ptahhotep's first maxim, that wisdom may be found anywhere. More intriguing still is that a number of scholars think Nebkaure from the eloquent peasant is the same king to whom the instruction addressed to King Merikare is ascribed. If so, this opens up the possibility of reading the eloquent peasant as a critical response to the claim we found in that instruction that the poor man does not speak justly. 
Also, if Hans Goedeke is right that Hetty was so prolific as to have written both the eloquent peasant and Mericare, then this turns out to be a case of an author in dialogue with himself. Speaking of dialogue with oneself, let's turn to the dispute between a man and his ba. Unfortunately, no manuscript preserves the beginning of the work intact, so the initial setting and any narrative framing of the dialogue are now lost. As the text as we have it begins, a man is in the midst of complaining that he is overwhelmed. As the youth of today might put it, he can't even. His problem is that his ba is disagreeing with him. The standard translation of ba is soul, so the work is often called the dialogue of a man and his soul, although it is also known as the man who was weary of life. But as with Maat, we are dealing here with a distinctive ancient Egyptian concept. If the ba is a spiritual dimension of the human person, not identical with the body, it is not the only such entity. The Egyptians also spoke of a person's ka, which is something like vital energy without which a person could not be alive. While humans appear to have only one ka, there are references to gods having multiple ka's, representing different personifications of different qualities. Some translate ka as spirit. The ba, on the other hand, often represented as a bird with a human head, seems to be an aspect of the person that is specifically relevant for the afterlife. So if soul is a good translation, then we should have in mind the idea of soul as a manifestation after death. James Allen describes how, in the pyramid texts, we get the sense that once the ka separates from a person at death, it is the task of the ba to reunite with the ka in the afterlife, with the resulting union being known as an ach, or effective one. Understanding all this prepares us for the strangeness of the dispute between a man and his ba. It is a dialogue between a man and an entity that is in one sense the essence of who he is, but one that most other cultural evidence suggests is not supposed to be active until after his death. Even more remarkable is the topic of the disagreement. The man is thoroughly dissatisfied with life and enamored by the thought of death. In this, he is opposed by his ba, which discourages his morbid obsession and recommends the full embrace of life. This is, therefore, a dispute about the relative value of being alive or being dead, in which the living man upholds the value of death, while the version of him that is supposed to be active only after death upholds the value of life. We should note, however, that there is some disagreement among scholars about which side of the debate the man and his ba are on, at least initially. The confusion is no doubt partly the result of our missing the beginning of the work. Early on in our surviving text, the man appears to complain that his ba is pulling him towards death, although he is not yet ready. That seems to suggest that initially it is the ba who longs for the afterlife, while the man is unsure and still clinging to this world. Alan follows this reading, and thus detects later on in the dialogue a profound reversal in the soul's attitude in the wake of which each party now adopts the other's position, the soul advocating life and the man death. It is possible, though, to read the dialogue in such a way that each party consistently holds the same position. Parkinson explains the man's initial complaint, not as a desire to cling to life, but as a lament that he cannot hope for a pleasant afterlife if his ba refuses to stand by him in the next world. According to Parkinson, the death towards which the ba would drag the man is not the end of his life in this world, but a more complete destruction of the self, the second final death that was inflicted on the dead who were condemned by the gods. In any case, it is clear on either account 
that the debate is eventually a conflict between the man's preference for death and the Ba's advocacy of life. The two pursue the debate through competing descriptions of death. For the man, it is sweet relief, and the West, as ancient Egyptians used to call the land of the deceased, is a comforting harbor at the end of a voyage. His Ba, on the other hand, describes death as heartbreak, and as a man's being taken away from his house, rather than as a homecoming. The Ba furthermore emphasizes how the dead are forgotten, even those buried in magnificent pyramids. Then there are the two parables told by the Ba, the first of which is clearest in its message. A man's wife and children are killed by crocodiles, and the man in the parable mourns most for the children, who lived for so little time. The second parable seems more trivial, as it involves a man who asks for dinner before his wife is prepared to give it to him. The portrayal of the character's impatience seems calculated to reveal how irrational and ignoble it is to wish for something like death before the time for it comes. Thus, the two parables seem to encourage us to value life, although perhaps not to cling to it, realizing that there is an appropriate period of time for each life. After these parables, the man offers a series of lyrical speeches, the first one a lament structured around the memorable refrain, Look, my name reeks, a dilemma that will be familiar to any listeners whose surname is Limburger. The second speech is likewise structured around the refrain, Who can I talk to today? and evokes not simply personal sadness, but general societal breakdown, as when the man says, Who can I talk to today? There are no just men, and the land is left over to the doers of injustice. And yes, as you might guess, this phrase involves forms of the word mat, and also the word standardly understood as its antonym, isfet. Here we see most clearly why the dispute is often classified as belonging to the genre of texts known as laments, which includes other works such as the prophecies of Neferti, the complaints of Chache Peraseneb, and the admonitions of Ipuwar, each of which feature gloomy bewailing of overturned norms and unchecked evil. Both the dispute and the eloquent peasant feature moments where the personal pain of the protagonist is generalized in this way, allowing for the expression of moral and social ideals through disturbing depictions of what happens when those ideals are abandoned. In a third speech, the man turns from lamenting life to glorifying death. Death is to me today like the smell of flowers, he says, and in a fourth and final speech, he speaks of the afterlife as a place where justice is done and where one can become truly wise and knowledgeable. The work then ends with a reply from his ba, which, despite representing no major change in position, nevertheless represents a resolution of the conflict between the two sides. The Ba urges the man to cease his complaining, saying, Love me here, having put aside the West, and also still desire to reach the West, and invoking the same image used initially by the man to conclude, I shall alight when you are weary, so shall we make harbor together. The Ba therefore ends the argument by once again encouraging the immediate embrace of life while also acknowledging that death is, as the man has been suggesting, something worth looking forward to. While the dispute may sound like an uncontroversial example of a philosophical dialogue, Parkinson has pointed out that the two characters disagree without any argument against each other's views. Moreover, the resolution at the end fails to make clear any rational basis for the Ba's partial agreement with the man. In his view, it is rather a poetic dialogue devoted to a broad theme rather than an argumentative work, 
But while it is true that no one's speech is presented as a rational argument, such an argument does emerge from the exchange as a whole. The author raises the fundamental question of how the value of life compares to the value of death, and concludes by transforming two seemingly antithetical competing views into complementary attitudes. Life is a limited resource, to be enjoyed fully so long as we can, yet it is also the occasion for many sorrows, which will be ended finally only by death. This synthesis of seemingly opposing positions is one major philosophical contribution of the dialogue. Another becomes clear when we recall that this is ultimately the dialogue of a man, not with another person, but with his own essence. The dispute is therefore a pioneering exploration of psychological complexity and fragmentation. It suggests that the sorrows of life may lead to a double alienation, from both the world and from oneself. We need not see the man as having a split personality necessarily, but he is certainly being pulled in different directions, a feature common to many experiences of depression or other troubled mental states. The resolution of conflict in the Ba's final reply would thus represent the achievement of psychological wholeness and the related recovery of a sense of agency and direction. There is, of course, much more that could be said, not only about the dispute or the eloquent peasant, but ancient Egyptian literature more generally. We hope, however, to have demonstrated in some detail the range of philosophical themes that can be found in this literature. From here, one natural direction to move to continue our story would be down the Nile to ancient Nubia, whose history is deeply influenced by ancient Egypt and most famously intertwined during the 25th dynasty, part of the aforementioned Third Intermediate Period, when Nubian kings ruled both Nubia and Egypt. Unfortunately, while we can read Nubian inscriptions written in Egyptian, well, we can't, but some scholars can, there is a distinctive body of writing from Nubia in what is called the Meroitic script that is currently inaccessible because the language remains very poorly understood. So, in order to continue tracing written philosophical thought in Africa outside the areas colonized by Greeks and Romans, we are forced to move ahead into the Christian era. We will be examining texts that resulted from the spread of Christianity in the eastern part of Africa during antiquity. Nubia, for example, became Christian under the influence of Byzantine missionaries in late antiquity, and remained so until the early modern era, by which time Islam became dominant in this area, now mainly in the modern country of Sudan. Further south, in Ethiopia, Christianity gained the status of state religion even earlier than in Nubia, and it has never completely lost its place to Islam, even to this day. But before we turn our attention to Ethiopia, with its long tradition of writing and its underappreciated significance in the history of philosophy, it is time for the first interview of the series. Our guest will be a scholar of ancient Egypt we've mentioned several times in this episode. Join us to appreciate the eloquence of Richard Parkinson, and, if it is not too sheepish, perhaps also his ba. Next time here on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 